Hello and welcome to another episode of the More From Law podcast. I'm your host, Harry Clark. This episode features Jamie Johnson, a barrister specialising in business and property practice. Before beginning his legal career, Jamie was a personal trainer for over 10 years. In this episode, Jamie and I discuss his motivations for transitioning from non-law to law, his advice for people looking to become a barrister, as well as key skills to develop in order to succeed in future. Let's get into it. So hi, Jamie. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. And I tend to ask um, a sort of opening icebreaker question at the beginning of these podcast episodes, which is why did you want to join the legal profession and your background today? But having spoken with you um, off air kind of before this podcast and trying to organize it, I think I've been hard pressed to find someone who has had a more unique and should we say non-conventional route into law as you have. Um, So I'm really excited to speak to you today. Having spoken to, um, you know, non-law students and people who are kind of considering law not coming from that quote unquote legal background of doing an NLB or something like that. Um, I kind of really found your sort of story fascinating and um, really wanted to kind of like hear your thoughts on everything that you've sort of done to date. So I guess without further ado, um, what is your sort of background for people who who haven't heard of you and, and why did you want to join the legal profession? Well, immediately to before joining the legal profession, I was a personal fitness trainer and mm-hmm. professional sports coach. That is something that I'd done in various guises um, for the best part of, of two decades. I started coaching sport when I was about 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd always loved sport. I played a lot of sports all through school. And uh, when I went to university, I, I chose a degree which really would take as little time as possible so that I could spend the rest of it playing sport. Mm-hmm. So that's I did an English degree at university. Um, I had no thoughts of doing law at the time. And when I came out of university, the first thing I did was to work for a community charity, uh, which organised sports coaching in, in underprivileged parts of Birmingham. I did that for a while. And alongside I was playing hockey. I, I had aspirations to play internationally. Mm-hmm. And uh, although I didn't quite make it that far, I did play at, at a national level. Um, and, and ultimately, what I ended up doing was qualifying as a personal trainer. And I worked as a personal trainer and sports coach, coaching predominantly hockey and fitness training to people. And then I ended up franchising that business and having a company that did that with a number of personal trainers working to my model throughout the UK. Fantastic. And I guess now uh, you're a barrister and you're kind of taking that route um, down the pupilage path like a lot of other people. So when it came to transitioning from that world of fitness, like we've talked about, um, which I'm not sure we'll explore in a second, what, what, what was it that kind of made you go one day, actually, I'm going to, you know, become a barrister and switch from the world of barbells to just the bar, I guess, when it comes to practicing in, in court? I realized that I wanted to do something different um, mm-hmm. after about 10 years of running my company. And I looked, firstly, I realized I wasn't as young as I was. And the physical demands of having a fitness related job was something that I I wanted to do differently. I Mm -hmm. also felt my brain was dying a little bit. I wanted something that was an intellectual challenge. Mm -hmm. And I had a careful look at the skills I was using in running my business and tried to find something that might be a match. And having coached one or two uh, solicitors and barristers, that was something that jumped out as, as potentially an option. So I did some more research into that. And I think particularly the things that jumped out at me as, in terms of the bar were being self-employed. Mm-hmm. 
It was public speaking, which had been something I've done quite a lot of uh, alongside my company, which involves public speaking in terms of doing promotional talks and recruitment talks and that kind of thing. I also did some teaching. So I taught other trainers how to become fitness trainers and help people qualify. So I've done various public speaking roles and I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the marketing side, which in essence is, is persuasive advocacy, normally on a one on one basis. And so I looked at some of those types of skills and thought there may be a, something transferable there. And that's really what drew me to the bar and led to me going on and, and going down and doing my GDL. Um, I then worked a little bit to gain some experience in different legal roles, then did the bar course. Um, I'd already managed to get pupillage before the bar course. So I was in a very lucky position doing the bar course, knowing that I had something to go into afterwards. That's absolutely fascinating. And I guess once you kind of decided that you're going to try and explore, um, you know, this this world of law, and that's particularly on the barrister side, um, I assume you were kind of coming from the position of having very little legal knowledge and kind of um, wanting to kind of learn more and go out there and, and you know, get some experience and, and hopefully skill people as you did. So what was your sort of process for doing that from scratch to eventually get to a point where you could you know, have enough kind of knowledge behind you to, to go through pupillage and eventually practice as a barrister? I think that was the sharpest learning curve that I had to go through. <laughs> I realized very quickly when I went onto the GDL with um, 20 or so bright young things, and I was more of a, a bright middle-aged thing, um, <laughs> I realized that they were a lot more on the ball. They knew a lot more than me. They had done far more in terms of developing their legal knowledge. I, I, it was really obvious that that was a massive problem in terms of my CV and my attractiveness to potential legal employers. So I really had to try and work out what to do. One of the most valuable things I did was I was successful in getting a mentor through my university who was a local barrister, and he was very helpful in directing me to where the holes in my CV were. And then my job really was just to try and fill those holes, and they were most noticeably things like mini pupillages and experience in law firms, um, solicitors and so on and so forth. It was developing more legal public speaking, so mooting, uh, mock trials, that kind of thing. And then it was developing the, the, the legalese, the, the jargon and, and language that lawyers use so that when you were faced with a question in an interview, you understood the question so you could answer it because previously I was in a point where I probably wouldn't even understand the question. So I had no <laughs> hope of answering it. And, and and ultimately, that's why I ended up taking a year out between the GDL and the bar course because I realized there were too many holes and that I couldn't fill those while studying. And so I took a year out to do some, some legal experience and, and fill those holes in my CV. And ultimately, that proved to be the right strategy. So you mentioned that you made the decision to go down the barrister route um, instead of the solicitor one. I think a lot of students um, or just people wanting to enter the profession generally kind of struggle to make the distinctions between which of these two um, seemingly opposing routes they should go down. What was that decision process like for you coming from um, the normal background and from a different industry entirely? Although I thought I was probably likely to go down the bar route, I certainly didn't want to come into it with a closed mind. And I did work experience with a number of solicitors. I um, volunteered to work as basically a, a, an unpaid intern for a prolonged period with a high street firm. And I also did a vacation scheme with, uh, with a Silver Circle um, firm, so a fairly big international firm down in London. Mm -hmm. And 
I did those to really test the water and just see whether I might be equally well suited to work in any of those environments, which would obviously have the, the added benefit of being a salaried employee and everything else that comes with that. The, the real deciding moment for me was in the middle of the vacation scheme. It was a two week vacation scheme down in London, usual kind of format where you're going around the different departments, um, learning about what they do with a series of talks and um, very impressive, wonderful buildings and high value cases and so on. And it reached the point where halfway through you had to apply to have an interview at the end of the vacation scheme. And if that interview was successful, then you'd get a training contract. Mm-hmm. And I, I went home for the weekend because obviously we were only uh, at work, as it were, Monday to Friday and was considering what to put in my application form. And I just thought, I don't want to do this. This isn't the life for me. I would much rather try and get to the bar, even though it has such a high failure rate, than go down the route of becoming a solicitor or or to work in a very exciting, very um, high-powered law firm, such as Mm. the one I was at. Uh, And so I didn't put in an application for interview. I was the only person on the vacation scheme who didn't. Um, and, and made the decision there and then that I was going to go for the bar. No matter what, I would rather fail doing that than than succeed at, at going down the solicitor route, which I just felt wasn't for me. And you mentioned kind of in your opening answer when you were talking about your background that you, you ultimately sort of went through this entrepreneurial route, I guess, when it came to the world of fitness. Um, and I've always found it really interesting to speak to various types of entrepreneurs, people who have founded their own business, their own side projects or community projects or something of some sort, and to hear their thoughts on the kind of skills and things that they feel that's teach them that they've ultimately transferred either throughout that business or, or as you have done into a different career. So when it came to, um, you know, building, taking that first step and kind of building your company and growing it, um, what was the experience like? How did you go about that process? And, um, you know, what lessons, I guess, did you, did you learn along the way in doing so? To start with, my, my aim was nothing more than to have something that would pay the bills mm-hmm. whilst giving me enough flexibility to get the training in that I needed to do to, to play hockey. Uh, and although in the back of my mind, I hoped that it might become successful enough that I might end up broadening it and having other people working with me. Initially, I just wanted to make sure I had enough work. And actually, I was reasonably successful within about nine to 12 months. I was maxed out and, and working as many hours as I could. And in mm. fact, my original plan of having enough time to train seemed to be going wrong because I was coaching people every hour that I could. Mm. So I start, I then looked at how I could expand it and spoke to a few business mentors. One of the very first bits of advice I was given is that the business I was running wasn't suitable for franchising. So I went down the route of employing other trainers and, and built up to having up to three employees. But I found that that was very hard work. It wasn't delivering the, the profits that I wanted and it wasn't scalable. Mm-hmm. And I and that was about three years in. I reached that point and I saw somebody else, you know, another kind of business consultant, business mentor who suggested franchising might be viable. And ultimately, that's the route that I went down. Um, I went down the franchising route, in essence, because it would allow me to grow more quickly. Mm-hmm. It meant that I had to, I was able to share the risk a lot more with the franchisees 
rather than as an employer, I was taking all the risk. And whenever I had a, an employee who perhaps didn't want to work too hard, that they kept shedding clients as fast as I could recruit them. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I had to pay their salary no matter what. So sharing the risk made it more attractive. And indeed, my, my initial employees went on to become my first franchisees. They made a lot more money that way and, and ultimately ended up being the people who bought me out and they bought the business off me when I changed careers. Mm. And entrepreneurship within the legal profession um, is, is certainly a, a potential career avenue and one that's, um, I think, increasingly popular. People either outright starting their own firms or providing some sort of service through a startup. Um, but when it comes to just entrepreneurship generally and, and kind of going through that 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 path that you've described um do you think there are any kind of common misconceptions that people listening who might want to start their own business or try something like that would would ultimately be believing and something that you think you've kind of dispelled through um your sort of practice in founding your own business i think most people come in with an unrealistic attitude as to how many hours a week you'll need to work Mm -hmm. and how long that that very high level of, of input will last I think a lot of people come in thinking either that they'll be able to do it off a kind of a 40 to 50 hour week. And the reality is, if you want to get a successful business off the ground and to a successful point reasonably quickly, you will need to put in at least 50 and often 60 plus hours a week. And that won't pass after 12 months or so. It will probably carry on for quite a number of years. So it involves a certain amount of commitment and determination and certainly that was one of the things I found very transferable to the bar and I was able to evidence in interviews that actually I was used to working very long hours for prolonged periods. One of the other things I think is that as an entrepreneur you can't afford to pay everybody else to do all the different functions that will be done by a big company. In a big company you'll have an HR department and you'll Mm. have an accounts department and Um, you'll have a marketing department and so on and so forth you have to be all those things in your business you have to be doing the marketing you have to keep your finances in order and keep the tax man happy otherwise you will become very unhappy you have to go out there and find your clients you then are frequently then working with your clients you're not only doing the marketing but you're then doing the service delivery as well if you're producing something you'll be producing those products so you have to be able to wear many hats And most people won't have those skills. And I think, again, a lot of people don't necessarily appreciate that a lot of running your own business is doing the mundane things like bookkeeping. Mm. Um, It's doing the mundane things like reading up on what laws or rules might apply to you, whether that's in in a tax sphere, whether that's in a human resources and employees, whether it's to do with the rules of contracts between you and suppliers. If you're importing and exporting, there'll be a whole series of other rules and and a lot of people think becoming an entrepreneur is exotic and interesting mm-hmm. it's not a lot of it is hard graft and only 10 percent of it is interesting uh, and an even smaller percentage is actually enjoying and, and getting the profits it's mm. interesting and we've talked a lot this episode about your sort of entrepreneurial background um, and obviously you've mentioned throughout this episode that um, unlike I think a lot of kind of traditional conceptions as to how lawyers work in firms or as an office environment um, barristers are ultimately self-employed um, for people who perhaps aren't aware of that distinction could you just perhaps give a bit more info and clarify as to how um, that's the case and how you've kind of transferred your entrepreneurial skill set into the realms of law when it comes to being self-employed as a barrister yes yeah, certainly 
in terms of the way the majority of barristers work, and I, and I will caveat that in typical lawyer fashion by <laughs> saying that there are self-employed barristers, the CPS, for example, the Crown Prosecution Service, normally offer pupillages and, and employ a number of barristers to act as prosecutors. Again, some big law firms will have a, a litigation department with some barristers within them and their other employed roles. But the majority of barristers are self-employed. They work in a, a chambers, which is sometimes also known as a set. So those two words are, can be used interchangeably. And that is, in essence, a, a collective, a cooperative of self-employed barristers who agree to work together in terms of pooling their resources. They all pay in a percentage of what they earn to pay for the building that they operate from, the staff who work for them, most, most notably the clerks, who are the people who manage diaries and get work in, and pay for all the things you need, really, to be successful in running, uh, running your, your business as a barrister. So your photocopying, your IT, your library of resources, and those kind of things. So most barristers are self-employed. They are classed as sole traders unless they set up a, a different legal entity and the, and the majority don't. So you're classed mm -hmm. as a sole trader. You have to do your own accounts, your own tax return, your own VAT payments, all that kind of thing. The clerks will help with a lot of that. So they will tend to keep your financial records in order and give you a simple spreadsheet, which you can then use or pass on to your accountant. But you are responsible at the end of the day for um, keeping things square with the tax man, putting your tax aside, paying your tax bill every six months, making sure your VAT is paid as, as and when it's necessary. Um, so you are self-employed. That also means that you can pick and choose your own holidays mm -hmm. to an extent. It means that you don't get sick pay. It means that when you're not working, you're not earning, which mm -hmm. in times like this uh, of the coronavirus lockdown can be particularly difficult for, for a number of barristers mm. but you have more flexibility uh, and you have the you know you don't need to necessarily work nine to five if on any given day you don't have any work to be doing because you're not in court and I can totally see how coming from that entrepreneurial background that that mindset and the kind of transferable skills like you've mentioned have really kind of helped you transition from um, something like fitness to to the world of law um, and I guess when it came to doing that transition um, obviously like a number of students who might be listening or others who are wanting to get into um, the sort of barrister career you had to go through the pupillage process um, and I get a lot of questions from students both who are interested in being barristers and solicitors thinking you know, am I going to be at a disadvantage coming from this normal background? Um, you know, I don't really feel like I have any relevant legal experience to talk about. Um, I think you're a kind of perfect example of someone who's obviously kind of defied those usual expectations or the, the common conceptions as to how a lawyer enters the profession. Um, so when it came to the pupillage process and you were talking about your business, you were talking about your kind of transition from this world to the, to the legal one. Um, what was it like? What was your sort of advice to someone who's listening who's, who's not from that stereotypical law background um, to, to, to navigate the pupillage process and to, and to handle the interviews? I think you have an advantage in that when you are interviewing for pupillage, you are essentially mm -hmm. saying to the barristers who are interviewing you, I will be a worthy colleague for you. I am worth you investing your own money to pay my pupillage award mm -hmm. and I will be an asset to your chambers going forward. Most people, I think, when they're going through the pupillage process, don't, don't realise that each of those people sat in front of them 
will be paying a proportion of their the money they get given as a pupil and ultimately they want to know that that's a good investment that it will be an asset to chambers because further down the road once you're qualified you're going to be bringing more money into chambers which everybody will then benefit from so i think you need to convince them that you can do that and as somebody who's had a previous career it's a lot easier to be able to evidence and say to them I've dealt with a number of situations in the real world rather than just in an academic environment. I, for example, was able to evidence dealing with um, clients and winning new clients, which is obviously one of the skills of the barrister that you need to win over solicitors and convince them you can do a competent job. I was also able to give examples from the various work I've done, particularly, say, with vulnerable clients or, or, with, or with young clients, because I've done a lot of coaching to, to children as well that I was able to develop rapport very quickly and that I was able to help people when they're in moments of crisis, which again, is something I've done in various roles before. Um, so for example, I was able to call on my experience of personal training within a, a therapeutic community, which is a group of people with mental health issues. So I was able to say that I had real world experience of developing that trust and dealing with people when they were having good days and bad days, which is very applicable to a career at the bar when you're when you're making meeting clients who you know are facing long prison terms or are about to have their children taken away or are in a civil case where they might lose their house so being able to to draw on a greater variety of previous experience was definitely an advantage being able to talk about having been self-employed for a long period and understanding that that money comes and goes you have lots of extra responsibility you need to be self-motivating you don't have a boss there saying you need to hit this target by this, the end of the month or, or the end of the year. So I was able to demonstrate those things. The most difficult question that I got asked on more than one occasion is, you've been a personal trainer for a while. How do you know you'll be a good barrister? How do you know you won't try it and then decide it isn't for you and go back to being a personal trainer? And that's clearly a good question to be asked. It's a very valid question and one that you needed to come up with a good answer for. And I think that would be true for anybody coming in as a second career um, to the bar. What did you say out of interest? How did you how did you pitch yourself as an answer to that question? Well, I drew on the fact that I'd, I'd worked in personal training and had run my own company for 10 years as, a, as an example of commitment that I wasn't a fly by night who kept mm. butterfly flitting from one career to the next. And then I really drew on the number of transferable skills, which showed that I already exercised many of the skills that a barrister does on a daily basis within my previous career which I felt perhaps if I drew on the right examples put me an advantage over many younger applicants who wouldn't have had the opportunity to develop those skills. No, if I was on the pupillage committee I'd be uh, more than satisfied <laughs> with that answer. That's a, a, good, a great example there. I guess finally you've mentioned it a few times um, throughout the sort of last two answers or so, um, talking about sort of skills of barristers. And obviously at the beginning of this episode, we talked a bit about the entrepreneurial skill set that you had and how that's helped, you know, been applicable and transferred to the bar. Um, I think a lot of people obviously understand how advocacy is a big part of being a barrister. But if you could provide some advice to people listening who are wanting to really get into the bar and, and kind of consider it as a career path, what do you think are the, the real kind of key skills that are fundamental to being a good barrister and, and getting through that pupillage process and beyond? 
Well, I have extra insight here in that I sit on my chamber's pupillage committee and mm -hmm. I review all the mini pupillage applications as well. And I think the biggest shortcoming I see in a lot of the applications before me is, is a failure to demonstrate the soft skills that a barrister needs. I think there, there is a massive underestimation from most applicants that a large part of your skill is dealing with the client, not just the solicitor. Mm. And, and being able to demonstrate the ability to relate to people from all sections of society, whether that's um, high rolling, high flying, very rich people who might be dealing with um, high net worth cases, all the way down to the most lowly, those with severe mental health problems, uh, and also those from different ethnic groups and, and different walks of life. I think being able to demonstrate those soft skills is, is something that most people don't do adequately. Sometimes they have the experience and they don't express it well. Mm. Sometimes they just haven't got the experience. So I think my first bit of advice would be to go out there and get as much experience as you can. And it, people say, how do you do that to me? Well, I don't think it's that difficult, particularly if you're still at university to go and join those voluntary groups. I think a lot of people get too hung up on join, joining the law society at university and getting involved with legal activities mm. to the detriment of joining in with volunteer groups who might be working with the elderly um, or might be working with kids or might be working with um, people who have, who have other needs. I think uh, in my chambers, we particularly rate people who, who've done a prolonged period with um, the, the PSU, which is now called Support Through Court, which again is dealing with people in crisis, as is something like Citizens Advice Bureau. So I'd really recommend going and getting involved in those kind of activities. Public speaking, confident speaking is absolutely key. And it's good to see people who've got a variety of experience, not just mooting or, or mock trials, but there are a variety of places you can do public speaking debating societies being perhaps one of the most accessible to people who are students. Mm -hmm. um, but again, even if you're not a student anymore, in terms of access to things, there are a lot of jobs that involve a degree of public speaking and putting yourself forward to do those roles, any form of teaching. And again, there are opportunities to do that in a voluntary capacity, make an opportunity to go and teach something that you know about in a voluntary capacity to other people that will give you a very different sort of public speaking experience. And there are groups, professional networking type groups that meet up and do um, oral skills type work to help breed confidence or just develop experience in doing presentations. It might be with things like PowerPoint or, or it might just be speaking um, unscripted, unprepared, which is very good preparation for a pupillage interview. So those are definitely two of the key skills um, that I think are key and aren't necessarily things that we see in a well-rounded manner from many of the applicants that we see. And I think finally, that the last key skill is that ability to, to work hard whilst also balancing some degree of work-life balance. Most barristers, particularly in their second six of pupillage uh, and in their early years of practice, will be working 60 hour weeks most weeks. If you do that and nothing else, you will burn out very, very quickly. And it's important to ensure you have some kind of, of work-life balance. I haven't done any team sports, which have been a big part of my life since mm -hmm. coming to the bar 
because the practicalities of trying to commit to a weekly training session or always being available on a Saturday or a Sunday to play matches isn't realistic. But what I do is I, is I do a lot of running, I do a lot of cycling, um, and I compete in those events. And they're things that I can fit the training in. If I have a, an hour's window in the middle of the day, I can go for a run. Um, whereas I might not necessarily be able to commit to a, a coaching session in the evening because mm. my papers land on my desk at five o'clock and it takes four hours to prepare for a trial at nine o'clock the next morning. Fantastic. A really, really useful insight there into skills that people can use. And it's, it's great to get some insight from someone who's on the other side of the interview desk um, and kind of worked in that pupillage committee and has also come from that non-law background, as we've discussed. Um, thanks so much for sharing all your insights with us. It's been really, really insightful and interesting to, to speak with you and to hear about your background. Uh, where can people go to learn more about yourself? Um, the two key places I point them towards are my LinkedIn profile. So it is Jamie Johnston. And I should be able to find me on LinkedIn um, and DeerStreetBarristers.co.uk, which is my Chambers website. Um, my profile will be up there and you can also see a little bit more about the other barristers that I work with. Uh, and our Chambers were based in Newcastle-upon-Tyne and York. So we have two centres and we work predominantly across the northeastern circuit. Though, of course, our barristers, particularly our high profile QCs, will work all over the country. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for coming on here and for sharing um, your experiences with me today, Jamie. It was really, really appreciated. Um, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of the More From Law podcast. The amount of support the show has received recently has been unbelievable. So thanks again for playing your part in that by listening. If you'd like to support the show, please rate it five stars on the iTunes store and follow the show on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps the show reach more listeners. If you're looking for more tips, resources and guides, you can visit my website www.harryclarklaw.com where you can also sign up to my newsletter and stay up to date with everything that I'm up to. For now though, I'll see you in the next episode of More From Law.